0: During grad school, I once heard a Jesuit professor say that every true believer really undergoes three conversions, not one. The first is private, it happens silently in the heart. Second is communal, connecting a new believer to a local house of worship. Finally, authentic faith always translates to the world. It means wrestling with public questions. And in that sense, applying salvation never ends. You're about to hear a story from Robert P. Jones, a religious insider, who in a sense became an outsider, to think through and confront a real problem, namely the latent deep incubation of white supremacy that resides within some of our oldest, most longstanding American faith traditions. Only he could describe whether he agrees with these three conversions, and whether that's a fair explanation of his fascinating, still unfolding journey. But he's emerged as a clear-eyed thinker with the courage to say something hard to his own tribe. I won't ruin for you everything Robbie says about his choice for the uncomfortable title of his new book, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. But it comes from something that well-known American essayist, poet, activist, and novelist James Baldwin wrote in a New York Times column less than a year after Martin Luther King's assassination.
1: I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation they have been white if i may so put it too long they have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long the effect on their personalities their lives their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of pompeii they are unable to conceive that their version of reality that they want me to accept is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of myself.
0: For his part, at age seven, Robbie became a Christian at a Mississippi Southern Baptist church, where the only question was whether he'd be in church four nights a week or five nights a week. His major aha moment came in college, and then again digging into the deeper story in seminary, when he learned that the SBC emerged in 1845 over the question of slavery. Dividing with Northern Baptists over the matter of whether clerics could own slaves. Today, as founder and CEO of the prestigious Public Religion Research Institute, or PRRI as it's known in D.C., he's commissioned countless studies and written several books at the intersection of religion and politics. White Too Long is by far his most personal bringing to bear difficult cultural and denominational learning and conviction, looking squarely and unflinchingly at what Washington Post columnist Mike Gerson calls the worst stain, the greatest crime of US history. It's the thing that nearly broke the nation. It's the thing that proved generations of American Christians to be vicious hypocrites, turning normal people into moral monsters. Joining Robbie to talk candidly about race and religion in American life is John Ward, Chief National Correspondent at Yahoo News, and a journalistic leader whose own writing on race and many other public themes, some linked for you in the show notes, is, in my judgment, absolutely worth following. He also hosts the best-named podcast in the business, The Long Game, which we'd commend to you. As the country is changing, demographically, religiously, and politically, we need clear-eyed thinkers, and these are two of the best. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Robbie. Welcome, John. Thanks for making time to do this. And maybe uh, just as a a first question, Robbie, as I understand it, you published a different book in 2016 called The End of White Christian America, which makes a fundamentally demographic point, which is basically that when Barack Obama ran for president for the first time in 2008, we were 54% white Christian. And today, we're 44%. So the idea of WASP era is over. Could you just talk about that demographic reality and the sort of minority-majority impact it creates psychologically.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. That was the kind of heart of that book's argument was just saying that we have really crossed this threshold in the country and that it's not only an important demographic threshold, but an important cultural threshold. Because exactly as you say, you know, this kind of, we even have this acronym, White Anglo-Saxon Protestant WASP, and for most of the country's history, white Anglo-Saxon Christians have been the majority uh, of the country, demographically speaking. And it really has only been the last you know, 10 years or so that we've really gone from being a majority white Christian country to one that's no longer a uh, majority white Christian country. Um, and so, again, not just demographically, but culturally, this really makes a difference in, in terms of how I think many white Christians have always seen themselves as the majority, as the kind of controlling uh, power in the country. And we have found ourselves not just staring out at the horizon when the majority of the country would be majority non-white, which still won't happen uh, for another 20 years or so, but that we've already crossed this this, uh, this more cultural threshold.
0: And it's a real honor to have John Ward on uh, from Yahoo News. You know, John, I know you recently talked with Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson about their new book, Reparations. And as as both of you are are, are guys who grew up sort of in the church, in the evangelical church, uh, and are sort of coming to terms with parts of of what that also involved. You know, John, could you talk a little bit about that, uh, their reparations book and the idea of, of church being mostly about culture versus church being mostly about theology. Uh, that's something Robbie talks about in the book, the difference between the ideal and what people in churches do.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was interesting to read Robbie's book about growing up in the Deep South in more of a... Uh, was it? Did you grow up Baptist? I'm not remembering. Southern Baptist, that's right. Yeah. Yep. I may have missed this. Did you talk about what kind of singing was in your church services? Was it sort of traditional hymnals? It was, yeah. We had
1: the Baptist hymnal straight out of Nashville, Um, yeah, sitting in the back of the pews. Yeah,
2: Yeah. so it's interesting because like, I grew up in the D.C. suburbs about, I think I'm close to a decade younger than you, Robbie. I'm I'm turning 44. Yep. I was born in the late 70s. My parents became born-again Christians out of mainline denominations in the Northeast in the 70s kind of while you were going to Southern Baptist Church down in Mississippi. And so so my experience was different culturally. It was coming out of a very charismatic and Pentecostal tradition in terms of the church service style. It was very anti-institutional, which is in tradition it was just in tradition with a lot of evangelicalism throughout American history. But it was in this weird geographical location which is right outside DC. So you know, as I looked at sort of some of what Robbie was talking about, my big, my greatest point of interest actually in the book is the chapter on theology, because there's actually a lot of interesting parallel touch points between my experience and Robbie's. And I think it's that's where it gets really interesting, is to look at, you know, I think what Josh, you were referring to is a quote from Greg Thompson, one of the two co-authors of Book on Reparations, where he says that evangelicalism is a cultural phenomenon that represents itself as a theological phenomenon. I think Robbie's take on that is basically talking about the ways that racism or white supremacist attitudes or white supremacy are perpetuated through uh, institutions. One of actually the most significant quotes in the book, I thought, was on page 224, where it talks about the ways that white supremacy lives on through institutions and cultural practices. I just think that's such a key point, and I think I want to ask you in a minute about the ways that just sort of your chapter on theology. But before I, I ask you about that, I wanted to ask you if you have a working definition on what racism is. The Reparations book has one. I can read it if we want to. I may have missed that in the book, but um, what would you say? How would you define that term?
1: Yeah. In the book, I, I um, try to really stay with this concept of white supremacy, because I think racism is just really slippery. It can mean a lot of different things. And I really wanted to talk about something specifically as I could. And and I think the, the idea of white supremacy gets at, as you said, the structural and institutional side of, you know, maybe what we would call racism. Because, you know, I think racism can often mean, uh, do I hold personal ill will toward someone of a different race, personal prejudice? That, and, I, and I think really in the world I grew up in, that's the treatment it mostly got, right? was like, you no, know, you should not have negative feelings you know, toward anyone who's African-American or Latino, or that was really what got taught. And you mentioned singing, like, you know, so, you know, we sang red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the, all the children of the world, right? We sang that in vacation Bible school, like every a summer. So that was there. But what I think was so difficult for me as someone who grew up so inside that world to even to get my own head around was how that can simultaneously be there, that set of teachings, right? And at the same time, uh, be a tradition that is kind of willfully blind to the more systemic ways that racism functions um, in society. And so could simultaneously support segregation while singing Jesus Loves All the Children of the World, right? That those two things could hold together. And really, for white supremacy, I, I try to think about this and define it really as. Fundamentally, the idea that, that white lives are really worth more uh, than others, that whites are intended to be at the top of the social and power pyramid in human society, right? And that that's actually God's design for human society, right? Is it for people of European descent to be at the top of the pyramid and others to be underneath it? And I think to modern ears, to say it that flatly, I think, sounds offensive, right? Or it sounds odd. But it has been, in fact, the commitment of most white Christian traditions explicitly throughout
2: most of American history. I think it expresses itself a lot of times in a way that rejects the idea that there is a white supremacist ethic in America at all. But then I think sort of moves on to a mixture of like ignoring current political debates and Using the term, you know, that's too political or the phrase that's too political. But I also wanted to ask you about this dynamic of late where I've seen people on social media talking about how the phrase critical race theory has been used uh, sort of as as an updated version of how labels like socialism and communist were used during the civil rights era to discredit and dismiss arguments in favor of greater civil rights or arguments in favor of trying to work against systemic racism. And even that term, I think, also has been put in a box of uh, forbidden language for some people.
0: Versus on the other hand, like James Davison Hunter says, you know, CRT is, quote, the next front in the culture war, maybe a little bit more optimistically. But as you say, John. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that.
1: No, I think it's a really important thing to bring up because I I do think it's the contemporary label under which much of this debate is happening right now, critical race theory. And what's kind of odd about that, right, is that it comes out of academia, right? It's this kind of legal theory, right, that it comes out of. But but I think it comes as a stand in, as you said, for really denying the existence of institutional or systemic racism. Because, in fact, in, in the academy, that's really this body of work. I should say, the way the academy works, I mean, critical race theory is not an object in the world. It's a a kind of body of work, loosely defined, uh, kind of like feminism or something like that. It's a big, broad label. It's not like one thing in the world, even though it's getting treated, I think, as kind of an object that you can point to and say, not that. It really is out of the legal world of trying to think about tools for how do we think about the ways that racism gets institutionalized and passed down uh, through generations through institutions or, or gets embodied in laws. Ah, uh, right. That that impact African Americans in ways that they don't impact white Americans. That's the root of that term. Um, and then, yeah, it's been it's really interesting. It, you know, got picked up by former President Trump uh, back in September, where he kind of pulled it in the political realm. And then it's been picked up in particularly in, in Southern Baptist circles, um, where there's been a huge. There was a resolution passed a couple of years ago um, uh, by the Southern Baptist Convention that basically was fairly benign. That just said, look, we can't take it as a holistic worldview, but it may have critical tools to offer. But then there's been a pushback on that more moderate embrace, including by Al Mohler, who led the six Southern Baptist presidents most recently to denounce critical race theory as incompatible with the Baptist faith and message, right? In other words, to pronounce it a heresy inside of uh, Southern Baptist circles. And You have to ask yourself, okay, well, why now? Why this? I'm seminary presidents are busy. For all six of them to get, who are all white men, by the way, I should kind of make that really clear. Why now? Why at the end of a summer of nationwide protests around racial justice? It just becomes pretty clear. It's a kind of defensive move to kind of put up some walls to kind of prevent a lot of critical thinking. I think inside the denomination, it's kind of a protectionist move to kind of preemptively pronounce this as out of bounds. My other guess is that if you asked all six of those seminary presidents who signed that thing to give you a definition, you'd get eight different definitions of what critical race theory is. And probably they'd be hard pressed to cite chapter and text uh, on what exactly they found deeply problematic uh, there. But you're also right to point out this thing about, I mean, Martin Luther King, there were billboards, right, uh, put up uh, when King was organizing, calling him a communist, In fairly similar ways as ways to just kind of preemptively discredit the work that was going on. But what I think is really important is just to take the questions on their own terms rather than kind of inventing a jargon and then saying, we're not going to talk about that. But I think the thing we've got to really ask ourselves and Christian churches have to ask themselves is, can we talk about the legacy of inequality, of racial inequality and discrimination in this country and white Christians responsibility in that? I mean, I think that's the fundamental question.
2: And
0: some of those stories you just offered from the SBC presidents, for example, come from the Southern Baptist Convention, as you point Correct. out. Correct. Yes. You tell us just a little bit, share with our listeners about your own story. You went to a Southern Baptist seminary, right? Have an MDiv before your PhD from, from Emory. You grew up four or five nights a week in the SBC churches. You know What was the coming to terms with some of this
1: yeah, no, I feel like I could give that New Testament passage where Paul gives his Jewish credentials and he's like kind of running through like all the things to kind of give him his bona fides. I certainly do that as a Baptist. You know, I, I'm kind of a cradle Baptist and grew up. My parents were, you know, members of Southern Baptist churches. I have back in my family tree for 200 years, Baptist pastors in middle Georgia. Yeah, I was, I was literally there five days a week, as, even as a, a teenager, active in the youth group. You know, it was just there all the time and went to a Southern Baptist college, have a Master of Divinity degree from Southern Baptist Seminary. So drank as deeply at that well as I as I could. And I do think one of the I think shocking things for me is just realizing that having sat through that many Sunday school lessons, that many Baptist polity teachings uh, where we learned about that we did learn about the denomination. But the actual denomination's Genesis story is that it was formed in 1845 by a group of Baptists in the South who wanted to explicitly make enslaving others on the basis of the color of their skin compatible with the gospel. Like that's the Genesis story of our denomination. And I never got that story until I was in seminary. I mean, I was 20 years old before I got that story from a Baptist history professor at Southwestern Seminary. And it was, it was shocking, right. To find that, find that out, you know, like I knew there's generally a kind of rift between Baptists in the North and the South, but it just was never, Clicked into focus, right? Until I finally had a professor who said, No, like this is the issue. And actually pointed to the source documents, and you can read it in the source documents, you know, of this being the primary reason for the rift. And so taking that really seriously and then realizing that there never has really been a profound and deep reckoning with that history or, or a great theological reform movement that really takes seriously what it would mean for a theology that developed with a pre-commitment to slavery being compatible uh, with the gospel? What does that mean for the development of theology? I think we've never seriously asked that question.
0: Yeah, I, I want to push on that a little bit. I just, you know, I've listened to John Ward's podcast for probably three or four years, and he had the Levin on early on, early at the very beginning, and others thinking about sort of institutions gone corrupt, or institutions gone bad, or at least our political parties being broken. And one of the things Yuval often says is that, you can have a couple different views. You can take the view that people are basically good and that if they're managed correctly, society would be perfect. Or you can have the view that, that people are basically not good. There's all kinds of brokenness in the world and that with the hard laborious work over time like Edmund Burke talks about and others, eventually you can make some progress. You can have a roof over your head. You can, things can work right. And I guess my question would be, and John too, you know, as you think about sort of the, the institutional part of church life and religion in general all around the world, uh, including Islam, which you talk about in the book as well, Christians versus Islam, how they see each other, ought we think about the religiosity part as salve or as culprit or some of both, but the idea that, you know, and I'm sure you have plenty of people that you talk with Robbie, who get defensive, and they're like, "Wait, wait, wait, not my religion." You know, what about the argument? I guess what I really want to raise is sort of like, if it weren't for Christianity, might we be a lot worse off in terms of sort of equal dignity? And like, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think I'm. I got to go back to Frederick Douglass here. One of the more astonishing, as I was kind of. I mean, I'm not. I'm not primarily historian; I'm more of a kind of social scientist. But I did. A ton of historical spade work, you know, for this book and coming like to the witness of Frederick Douglass, who just flatly said it was his experience and the experience of so many other enslaved people that one of the, I mean, he, he just said it straight up. He said like, besides becoming enslaved itself, I considered the uh, one of the worst fates to befall me to be the slave of a Christian master. And what he basically said is that they were actually more cruel and treated their slaves worse than others. And, and the thing I, I'm really careful about, and I, and I should just be honest and say, look, I wrote through a web of my own defensiveness uh, in this book. Right? I mean, I grew up in the church. I care deeply about the church and its future. Uh, this is not a book that's like about trashing the church. This is, a, this is a book about like trying to bring the church to help is really what I, I feel like I'm up to in the book. And and yeah, absolutely. A lot of defensiveness. But, you know, it's one of those things where I think that in order to get to help, we've just got to get past some denial and the idea that there has been some ideal form of Christianity that is pure and undefiled in some way and just people practicing it badly. I think there's a way of kind of protecting its purity that gets in the way of health. So if I'm going to kind of keep holding up the mirror and saying, No, 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 like we were explicitly preaching sermons from the pulpit about the inequality, the superiority of white people to non-white people. Just one quick anecdote. I gave a sermon during Lent at Boston Avenue Methodist Church in Tulsa. They're about to celebrate uh, or, or kind of reckon with and memorialize the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre at the end of this month. What I discovered in kind of doing some research there is that After that happened, in that event, there were somewhere near 300 African-American lives lost, killed at the hands of their neighbors over a multi-day massacre. And entire area of town burned down. The Methodist bishop uh, came and gave the sermon at Boston Avenue United Methodist Church the the week after, like the Sunday after the massacre. What he had to say to his white congregation – and this was like the big congregation that the mayor and the bankers and the lawyers go to, like big downtown – was essentially, he blamed the violence on the African-American community and spent time in his sermon saying, we, we should be clear about this, that equality between the races is something that is not God-ordained and not something that either race should hope for, right? That's the message coming out of the white Christian church in the wake of hundreds of African-Americans being killed by their white neighbors. This was not that unusual. So I, I think this is the part of church history we just don't like to tell. But I think that if we're going to get anywhere, on this issue I th- I think we've got to sort of hold that up and say you know not only yes did we build that hospital did we take care of those orphans yes
2: we did all that stuff but we also did this there can be a reflexive attempt to answer the question like the one you asked whether it's me or somebody else I think the reflex could be to say okay I'm going to answer that question in terms of Christianity is good or Christianity is bad or it's had a good influence or it's not it's We all know like, reality is never binary, and it's never that simple. But I also maybe would reframe the question a little bit. Maybe you didn't say it explicitly, but I think in the way it was framed, it sounded like it was a question about American Christianity. And I think the question about the impact of Christianity should be about the historic global church, and not just about American Christianity. And I think when you frame it that way, it actually does raise an even more interesting question, which is how badly disfigured has American Christianity been compared to the historic faith because of the original sin of slavery and white supremacy? And I Mm -hmm. think that really is the question, maybe the meta question, that white American Christians really need to grapple with. But I think it would be a clear falsehood to say that there's been no evidence of positive impact from the Christian faith. The irony is that one of the greatest examples of that in American history is the witness of the black church (laughs) under immense suffering and persecution. And yet that is typically An example that goes pretty unnoticed, if not completely ignored, by most white American Christians, which that was the whole dynamic that Greg was responding to when he talked about white evangelicalism as a cultural phenomenon that presents itself as a theological phenomenon. Robbie, I wanted to ask you about the theology. You're calling in the book in chapter three, I think it is, about you're calling for the conservative white church to look at its theology through this lens of race and the historical legacy of white supremacy, which you document in the first few chapters uh, really well. I would love to hear you talk about what should replace some of these things that you talk about, because I'll just tick them off. You have the premillennialism, which is like the left behind eschatology. I thought it was really interesting how you cataloged the way that what was the turning point where they went from post-mill to pre-mill? Yeah, the it Civil, was, war. Uh, the Civil war. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have the individualist view of sin. You have the emphasis on personal relationship with God. The Bible is a protector of status quo. And the lost cause theology. I think the lost cause theology is probably more of a geographical phenomenon that's more isolated to the South. But those first four, the eschatology, the view of sin, Individualist view of the faith and the Bible as a protector of status quo. What are your current thoughts on what should replace or update those things?
1: Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this. I don't get to talk about this piece of it as often as the political stuff, so it's yeah. I actually am, am happy to have this, um, happy to have this conversation. Well, you know, I mean, as I was thinking about that chapter, and it's actually the only chapter, our only subject piece I've ever written on theology publicly, so it, it was kind of new. Territory. For I'm going to dust off my MDiv degree a little bit and try to think about it. But it was it wasn't just an academic exercise. It was actually pretty personal because it. I was trying to ask myself the question: Why didn't I see this? Right? Why didn't I see growing up inside my church racial injustice that was happening all around me in Mississippi in the 70s and 80s? Why Why didn't I see it? Why did my church see it? You know, my high school was the Rebels. We had a Confederate soldier for a, it was an integrated public high school, half black, half white. We had a, you know, rebel flags flying at the football games. The band played Dixie. My college, uh, Mississippi College, good Southern Baptist College, right outside of my hometown, sits on land that was seized from Native Americans in the early 1800s. And we very unreflexively had our mascot was the Choctaws and would chant scalp them, Choctaws, scalp them, right? At football games, right? Just completely oblivious to the, kind of deeply problematic um, layers, you know, that, that are there. But just, so I guess the question for the theology chapter was really my saying, like, well, what did I, how did I miss this? Like, and I came to the conclusion that there was kind of this interlocking system of theology that, you know, I mean, any sort of lens, like theological lenses, they, they bring certain things into focus, and they bring certain things out of focus. Like, if you think about a field of vision, right? Certain things are sharp, certain things are fuzzy, and like, you're in portrait mode. And I, I feel like that's probably that's what happened is it like so so what I, what i heard every sunday right was about having a personal relationship with jesus there was an invitation given for people to come and be saved at the end of every service hymns that were sung along those lines like that every single service you know we, we got but just virtually nothing to help me think more critically about all these african american kids that i was going to school with and and what they were dealing with, and the vast inequalities in a city like Jackson, right, that are so historically easy to trace, uh, black people all living in one part of town, white people all living in another, just there was just nothing there. And so to name those things off, so I, I think it was this on the pre-millennial, post-millennial thing, you know, it really is just about like, what's our responsibility in the world, right? Are we about bringing about the kingdom of God here on earth? Or is that something that's never going to happen because the world is kind of on our downward trajectory. And the only thing that brings that about is the second coming of Jesus and uh, it was the Civil War right where people really switched where evangelicals in the South switched from thinking literally uh, if you read the sermons like a Basil Manley senior literally preaching on at the inauguration of Jefferson Davis that this was that the Confederacy was God's ideal of human society come to earth. I mean it was a kingdom of God kind of approach for the con- uh, thinking about the Confederacy. after that fails, there's this switch like okay, we're not going to bring that about on earth it's in a downhill swing and we should just expect more of that. So it relieves us then of responsibility, right. For working for equality, social justice, those kinds
2: of things, just kind of come out of the field of vision uh, for Christianity. Just to interject on that. I mean, in some ways it actually creates a nihilism. Whereas where if things are going badly, there can be a tendency in some circles to basically say, well, that's unfortunate, but it's also good. Because it means that we're getting closer to Christ's return. This is an area where even though I grew up where I did, that mindset was very strong and prevalent. So it's really interesting to connect those dots.
1: Yeah. And then the individualism fits hand in glove with that, right? Um, because if if out there is not really my responsibility, then the focus of religiosity comes in here, right? So I can remember, I mean, I don't know about if you had this dynamic going on, but I mean one of the Key things in the Baptist world, especially as an adolescent, right? You kind of go through this development stage where you're having to own your own faith. And this question of, am I really saved, right? Am I actually in right relationship with Jesus was like a perennial worry, right? Growing up, I mean, it occupied a lot of mental energy and space. But if you think about that, I mean, it is because that's where the locus of religion becomes. It becomes very interior, right? It's about a kind of emotive or experiential kind of. Uh, security, right? That that you kind of work on through quiet times and prayer, and like there's all these kind of techniques that are about developing and sustaining that sense of interiority and and being in right re- relationship with God. But again, if you think about that, what does it do? It kind of relieves you then of there were not that many practices that would like actually direct our gaze outward, right? To to the society around us, but a lot of kind of inward. And then I think the Bible and and, and really a lot of biblical literalism or inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy in particular, it just means that it's mostly white men who are pronouncing what is and isn't inerrant, right? And we see, actually see this playing out in critical race theory that in the debates in the SBC, you know, when uh, Dwight McKissick and, and a few other African-American leaders spoke up and said, you didn't consult any African-American leaders inside the SBC before you went out and made this big pronouncement? And they actually doubled down Right, and they said, "Which
2: pronouncement was that?"
1: Sorry, this is the the denouncement of uh, our calling uh, CRT incompatible with the Baptist Faith, the message. And when they got called out by a bunch of African American pastors for not consulting a single African American and making that thing, Adam Greenway, who's the seminary president at Southwestern, basically just doubled down. He said, "Actually, to assert that we would need to consult an African American is itself part of critical race theory and racist itself. In fact," That has absolutely nothing to do with biblical interpretation. So I think this kind of assertion of that a white male could interpret the Bible and that's really what it is and there no other perspectives bring anything new or
2: relevant or revelatory, you know, is kind of part of the package. I can't help but remark that that assertion by the theologian at uh, Southern Theological Seminary is directly connected to the other two elements you've already
1: Mm-hmm. Listed
2: because it is, a fairly, it is a fairly Gnostic view of Christianity, where our embodied, lived existence, our physicality, has basically nothing to do with our faith. And so that's where the eschatology comes in, because it's all about the world to come, and not the world as it is. That's where the individualist view of sin and the interiority comes in, because it's located in the soul. And not in the body. So these, I mean, we're, we're working on a lot of the same stuff here, but it's just fascinating to connect these dots. Sorry. So what would you replace that with? And by the way, I'm, I'm reading a book on five views of inerrancy right now myself. So yes. And Moe is one of the guys. Uh-huh.
1: No, that's well said. I think in bringing up the kind of, yeah, we're kind of circling back around to early Christian wrestling over Gnosticism, I, I think is a, uh, yeah, kind of perennial thing that kind of rears its head. I think it's well, really well put. I'll just take that lead. Then I I think it is about what do we replace it with? I mean, we've got to replace it with a more concrete and embodied theology, right? I think that's exactly right, right? That kind of takes seriously our embodied selves. It takes seriously what women have to contribute that men don't, what African-Americans have to contribute from their experience that white people don't. I'll say like what replaced it in in me personally was exactly that. It it was reading non-white theologians, right? That really kind of helped give me enough critical distance to see things differently. Um, So, you know, uh, reading James Cone and uh, Cornel West and Gustavo Gutierrez and, you know, other liberation theology, and not that I had to agree with every single thing that each of them said, but it was such a different perspective than the white, the interior kind of individualist theology that I'd grown up with. It was just such a
2: helpful anecdote for kind of thinking about a more holistic uh, faith. Well, your mention of liberation theology just sparks me to say, it was nice knowing you. We'll see you in hell, uh, because that was basically the way that I was. I mean, those kinds of things were really taboo.
0: And it's interesting, right, the stat about polarization in that direction, too. You know, what Republicans believe, that Democrats believe certain things that Democrats would not believe, and Democrats believe about Republicans that they are way worse, right, than they, because that's the sort of norm of, of reinforcing biases and finding, finding knowledge, listening for knowledge as you read that confirms your own beliefs and disconfirms the, the opposite, right? So I wonder about that in, in terms of, I mean, I think one of the reasons this book is so, so rich is because you talk about this being a reality and something that we've lived through for a long time and not that long ago. And yet when you get to the end, you don't say, here's the fix. You, you say something more like, if there's going to be a fix, it's not going to be transactional. It's going to be hard. It's going to take time. You talk about, I think you said that Episcopal Church has done some things in a few states. They're maybe putting some money together to think about the idea of quiet, independent reparations. But but what do you think, not to go too quickly to solutions, but what do you think about that old line? I think it's Brian Fickert who says that helping can hurt sometimes. If, if you're Gnostic, if you think sin has to do with the individual and it's really about absolving my own guilt for my own history and family lineage and nothing more, you don't think about how it's received or what the sort of partnership slow dynamic is for the recipient of any uh, support. What do you think about the idea of uh, solution and how long it's going to take and how much two-way work is involved?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I did resist the urge at the end to put my 10-step program for solving all these problems at the end of the book for a couple of reasons. One, I don't have a 10-step program for solving all these um, <laughs> these issues. Uh, but two, even if I did, I, I don't think it would be that helpful. I think one thing I learned by kind of just observing churches that have tried to do this work is that it is messy and it is long and it is slow. And I think that that actually, as I kind of looked at different examples that actually became kind of a mark of authenticity for me, right? That, that if it seemed too quick and too easy, it probably wasn't really getting deep enough um, to what was to what was going on. But, you know, I talk about these two First Baptist churches in Macon, Georgia, you know, for example, one predominantly white, one predominantly black, who just, you know, seven years ago, just kind of decided, like, let's just try to take, build community together. And, and I actually think that's the key of it, because, you know, I mean, you're, you're, joke, John, about like, okay, you mentioned liberation theology, and you're you're going to hell, is all too right, right? That there's just this quick, okay, now I don't have to listen to anything else that guy says, right? Because the whatever just got mentioned. I think the thing that cuts through a lot of that, and that makes this work less intellectual, I think that's always the temptation for white Christians is to make this work intellectual. Even in our theology, we tend to kind of think of theology as a kind of intellectualized project, but but I think the thing that I saw on the ground, and it's true in my own life too, I mean, the things that really made the difference are relationships, right? And I think that was the big wisdom of these two churches. They, they basically said, okay, we don't have a plan. We don't have like 10 steps. What we're going to do is we're going to commit to building community between our two congregations. And we're going to like see where that goes. And so they've been at this like seven years. It's gone some pretty interesting places. I mean, everything from... The white congregation realizing that they had to show up and kind of just even acknowledge and have on their radar screen Trayvon Martin's murder, right? And that when they tried to go on a youth trip to Florida and none of the black kids signed up, they realized it was because all the black parents were scared to send their kids to Florida in the wake of the Trayvon Martin shooting in a way that none of the white parents had to think about at all. Like that didn't even cross their minds, right? But because they were in community together, they ended up having to have a whole conversation about the kinds of talks that the black parents have to give to their kids that the white parents never have to think about. And that's growth, right? I mean, that's a kind of a change in worldview. It's growth. They've come to the point where they they were able to take a trip to Montgomery, to the Museum for Peace and Healing um, in, in Montgomery, which is about the history of lynching in the country, right? And then came back and had a communal discussion about that. I don't know that many black and white communities that could pull that off, right? Could actually go to something that difficult, come back and have a Christian infused real conversation about, about what that means and what that means for their life together. So I I think that's really what tends to cut through it, right. Is, is relationships. And I've sometimes said like, look, I think we can often make it, if you're white, the kind of defensiveness, the sense of this is so overwhelming, it's 400 years of history and how are we possibly going to undo this? Like all these questions start spinning around. But I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to, you know, if we could just kind of set our compass on two things, like if we set our compass and decide we're going to tell the truth and we're going to love all of our neighbors, just say like, that sounds really simple. But like, if we really live that out, that's not going to be that simple. Really. Um, the telling the truth part is really hard. And I think the loving our, all of our neighbors is really hard because at the end of the day, it's going to be,
2: it's going to be costly. I think particularly for, if you're white. Yeah. It's funny. I was going to talk about the two churches in Macon as well, but before I talk about that, I, I just wanted to say, You know, we talked about the ways that American Christianity has, I think, drifted from historical Christianity and misrepresented the faith in many ways. But, you know, all that said, there's no doubt in my mind that the Christian faith that I was taught and still believe in offers, I wouldn't go so far as to say it is the answer to our racial problems, because I don't, I just wouldn't put it that way. I wouldn't say it's the only solution. It's the only source of hope out there. But I, I do believe that the Christian faith offers immense resources and hope as it is intended to be practiced as it was taught by Jesus Christ. Because the way of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit are the two answers to the problem of the white Christian church in America. Because that means you give up power and you, as Robbie said, you serve your neighbor and you sacrifice for others. And that's something that is inhuman and not possible on our own strength. That's my sermon for today. But, um, (laughs) you know, I think the focus on localism is really important. That's why I was going to mention those churches in Macon, Mm. because, you know, I have a a friend, Neil King, you guys might have heard of what he did recently, where he walked from Washington, D.C. up to New York over the course of 25 days. He had written something before he went on that walk, and the walk just sort of amplified it. But it's about the power of place. Mm. And the thing that he wrote before he went on that walk was about searching for the patch of ground on Maryland's eastern shore where Frederick Douglass fought with the slave breaker uh, who he had been sent to. That was a key part of how Douglass then came to think about his own liberation. And Neil wrote this thing that was then kind of actually amplified by somebody else who wrote something else making it even clearer about how local historic place is such a powerful way for people in that place, in that community to come together, kind of like those two churches in Macon did, and get to know one another and see each other as human and talk about the past in a way that they can touch. I think that's really powerful. And I think that that offers some sense of a way forward for us. Because it gets back, it gets back to the sense of embodiment and incarnation, which which is what we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, and we've certainly tried the denominational statement route, right? So, twenty more denominational statements denouncing racism of however it is framed are certainly not going to gain much more ground than we have here. They just get summarily ignored for the most part by the congregation on the ground.
0: Which gets back to what you're saying, Robbie, about intellectual as theology or in theology as what you really are all about, as opposed to translation to something more more embodied, as John is describing, and you haven't mentioned yet this title, uh James Baldwin, what's that about?
1: Yeah, you know, so I mean, I've mentioned some other people I was reading but one of the people I read that I think really shaped my thinking uh a lot, which is kind of interesting, right so James Baldwin, a whole generation before me, almost two generations before me, African American, gay from Harlem grew up Christian, grew up as a boy preacher, in fact, but you know a pretty far cry from my own upbringing and, and background but I still found him so resonant today, both I think, for his clear eyed just really indictment really is the right word for it of the status quo and particularly his deep disappointment that he shared with King, I think, of white Christianity, thinking that that ultimately if white Americans were going to come to the side of civil rights, it was going to be Christians that did that. And just while there were pockets here and there, that was never kind of the great uprising you know, that happened. And the, the phrase, "white Too Long, actually comes from a New York Times piece that he wrote at a kind of real low point in his life after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So he's kind of writing and mourning, and I think in deep disappointment, again, with white Americans for not, even in the wake of his killing and his assassination, for not really standing up, Should I read just a little, the the context for the quote? Please. Here it is from this New York Times, 1969, early 1969. It says this, I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality that they want me to accept is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs, and an intolerable violation of myself. So, pretty sharp words, tough to hear. Um, but I, I, they, you know, I took the title from this "Been White Too Long" and. Yeah, And really hoping that that is the challenge, I, I think, of kind of, you know, for white Christians, white churches to disentangle themselves, right, from this commitment to whiteness, really, and, and, to, and to white supremacy, um, even going under different names. And I, I think the tough part of that, that quote, I think, is trying to take seriously where those words come from, and even if they're really hard to hear, using them as kind of a mirror, right, to say, all right, so how does someone get to that point to really kind of that kind of indictment what can we do about it today and and what's our responsibility um today and that a lot of his writing he's i think uh you know new books out on him all the time even now i think it's because a lot of stuff he had to say i think white americans weren't really ready to hear it 50 years ago and and i think it's finding a a broader audience today
0: well i agree it gives us a lot to think about and So have you, Robbie. So thank you for that. and Thank you, John. Ward, very much. Hopefully not just to think about, maybe uh, work on Relationally and Embodied. Appreciate the time.
2: Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, John, Josh.
0: Faith Angle exists to help leading journalists better understand the variety of ways that religious leaders are approaching the hard, enduring questions. Thanks for listening.